tall and tan and young and lovely. The girl from Ipanema goes walking. And when she passes, each one she passes goes. Ah. Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for late January 2017. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Star Trek Elite Force. My name is Roberto Amorim, and my game of the week is not Elder Scrolls Online. <laughs> have you played that? Yeah, I have. That's one of, we'll talk about this in a bit, uh, but that's one of those MMOs that uh, I kind of feel like, well, after, well, you know what? I'm going to hold that thought because it has a lot okay. to do with Guild Wars 2. So we're going to come yeah. back to Elder Scrolls Online in a minute. Uh, uh, so I didn't realize when I see your name, I just think Roberto. Uh, you actually pronounced it with, a, is it Roberto? Like, is it kind of a softer R? Pronounce your name for me again. Yeah, it's very difficult for uh, Americans to pronounce the way we do in Brazil. <clears throat> so it's actually Roberto. Is Roberto close enough if I say it like that? Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. It, uh, it's, now, it, it's because it's very difficult. Uh, I don't think you have the exact phoneme and, and, and normally in English. So yeah. Uh, is it because it's uh, Portuguese instead of Spanish? Is this, is yeah, it's Portuguese. Okay. Yes. Well, so you were in Brazil. Uh, that, that's, a, a, uh, I think, one of an interesting detail about you, Roberto. Uh, so in Brazil, the, uh, so first of all, Brazil, the language there is Portuguese, not Spanish, and I don't know how commonly people know that. But what does that do for you in South America? Does that set Brazil apart significantly from other places in South America? Or is it just yes. like having a different accent in the United States? Yes, uh, it, it, it influences a lot of things because, you see, uh, South America, uh, pretty much all countries in South America speak Spanish. And they have different, uh, uh, minor differences, but generally they can speak to each other without many issues. But Brazil is the only country in South America that speaks Portuguese. And uh, there's even an interesting fact uh, and that is also due to the difference in phonemes in both languages, is that uh, Portuguese and Spanish are sister languages, so to speak. Uh, mm -hmm. They have pretty much the same origin, and they share most of the same radicals. And, uh, so that means that they are very close. Uh, but the thing that, it's, that is curious is that people in Brazil can, uh, if someone tries to talk Spanish to you, you will understand most of what they are uh, saying. But the opposite is not true. If you try to speak Portuguese to someone that speaks Spanish, this, despite this, the, the similarities in the languages, they understand almost nothing because the phonemes are very different. They are used to pronouncing the words in, uh, in a different way. So it, it, it creates a divide, uh, an even greater divide in terms of uh, communication between mm -hmm. those two. It's also very difficult for uh, people in Brazil to speak Spanish because it, since it's a very close uh, language to Portuguese, it's very easy to mix them up, especially when you are learning. Mm -hmm. um, just an, ex an example, I, 
I have a much easier time speaking English than I would trying to speak Spanish. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, so in Brazil, you, you've mentioned the name of the city where you live and that it's basically, I presume, Portuguese for beautiful horizon. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. It's uh, yellow horizonte. Uh, that's a, that's a lovely name, and it makes are are a lot of cities in Brazil. Do they have names like that? Because I can't think in the United States. I, I think a lot of city names are appropriated from other languages or from the name of a founder. Um, I, I don't think that we have many cities that are descriptive. Actually, Roberto, I come from uh, a state called Arkansas, and my home city is Little Rock, and. Uh, like yeah. Little Rock is a weird concept, like that naming a city a, after a small rock. It's uh, there's something kind of poetic about it. I mean, when you call something yeah. New, New York or Philadelphia or San Francisco, there are obvious connections there to other cultures that they come from. But when you call something Little Rock, uh, so I think of Beautiful Horizon as uh, a poetic descriptive name for a city is that common in Brazil or does your city have a unique claim to that no it's very common uh, in Brazil we have a very large number of cities uh, so in my state only we have more than 800 and and we have 27 states in Brazil so they are not all the same size of course but we have a very large number of cities, independent cities, and so they need a lot of names, and you have all kinds of names. Uh, so there's uh, a city near, nearby called uh, Ouro Preto, and it's very important in the history of Brazil because it's a very old city, one of the first uh, uh, to appear in this region of the country, and it means dark gold. Uh, uh, I'm not sh entirely sure of the, the reason, but it has to do with mining, of course. There is a small city that is called Espera Feliz, and it's, it means happy waiting. <laughs> I have no idea why it's named like that, and I have no idea if the people who live there are actually good at waiting <laughs> happily. So, yeah, so we have a lot of names, uh, a lot of names of saints in many cities and, yeah, all, all kinds of things. Uh, you said that where you live at the state, it was fairly significant to Brazil uh, because of mining. Uh, a yeah. lot, I think a lot of the stereotype of Brazil here in the United States has to do with uh, the rainforest. Um, is that anything significant where you live? Like, I think in the United States, we imagine that Brazil is just this huge swath of rainforest sitting at the top of South America, and everybody lives next to uh, the, uh, the Amazon River, and there are tropical birds flying everywhere. In fact, when we were setting up the podcast, uh, I heard a noise behind you, and it was your, your six-year-old playing, but I immediately thought, oh, Roberto, that's some jungle tropical bird in the background. Uh, so describe for me more accurately, what, what is it like where you live and disabuse me of the notion that everyone in Brazil <laughs> lives in the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, it's, it's not at all like that, actually. Um, Brazil, originally, before uh, the Portuguese came here and settled here and everything, uh, the rainforest actually covered most of the country. Uh, not all of it. Uh, there, were some, there were some regions with different climate. Uh, 
but generally speaking, it, it was pretty big. But our, um, the advance of cities and uh, a whole lot of things have reduced those forests very uh, noticeably. So right now, uh, the tropical forest you have in the Amazon, and it's, it's diminishing very quickly, but since it's so big, it's, uh, most people don't even realize that. But here in the area I live, uh, rainforest is now, uh, uh, tropical forest is mostly limited to some mountain ranges and uh, some areas without cities. My city, uh, it has some, some hills around it. Uh, we are uh, about 800 meters above sea level, and uh, it's mostly, it, it, it rains in the summer, but we don't have a lot of uh, forest here. Uh, the neighborhood I live in has a lot of trees, but they are planted in streets, so um, I'm trying to think of any cities in the U.S. that are similar but you can imagine that uh, it should have about as much um, coverage of trees as you see in uh, in Sunnyvale, perhaps. Sure. But it's a much more. Uh, it's not so organized as a city. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's it's not very different. Uh, uh, most of those animals in the rainforest and most of the vegetation I have never actually seen with my own eyes. Uh, mostly in passing because between Belo Horizonte and Rio, uh, when you go from one city to the other by car, you pass through uh, uh, an area that has a little bit of rainforest. So that's as much as I've seen of rainforest actually. Now, I have a historical question for you that you might not know the answer for, but I'm curious. Uh, here in the United States, we, of course, began as, a, as an English colony, and we fought variously with the Mexicans, and I think even the, the British, we, we fought with them up in the Northwest long after we'd become a separate colony. And eventually, after things like the Louisiana Purchase, we became a big, huge, cult, relatively culturally homogenous uh, country where everybody speaks English and although we have different cultures uh, there, there's a unifying force now South yeah. America of course never had that but South America developed uh, from being uh, Spanish colonies how is it yeah. that Spain never took Brazil from, from Portugal like how is it that that whole area held out as a, a culturally Portuguese area and didn't get assimilated into what Spain was doing yeah. So, uh, roughly speaking, I may I may make some mistakes here, but uh, generally it must be mostly correct. Um, the Spanish and the Portuguese arrived here in South America at about the same time, um, and so there were there there was a dispute uh, regarding who took what or who had the right to colonize here, and the fact is that there was uh, an agreement between Spain and and Portugal. Uh, They basically took uh, a certain latitude and they said, okay, everything to the right belongs to Portugal and everything to the left, uh, uh, or or better speaking, everything to the west belongs to Portugal, everything to 
uh, to the east belongs to Portugal, to the west belongs to Spain. And, um, and that was the, the agreement of Tordesillas, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Portugal actually got most of the coast, the, the eastern coast of Brazil, of what is Brazil today, um, up to a certain to a certain longitude. But the thing is, uh, Portugal started uh, going uh, beyond the the agreed limit, and uh, as a matter of fact, Brazil extended uh, a lot beyond that area. And uh, there was some disagreement between Spain and Portugal, but it mostly stayed that way uh, for years. So that's basically what happened. So uh, most of the Spanish-speaking uh, countries were actually west of that line. And Brazil uh, uh, was, was east, but it entered uh, mostly in... Uh, uh, in the center of the continent, uh, there were expeditions, and uh, basically it, it extended beyond the line, but it settled at a certain time, uh, and that's basically uh, uh, what happened. That's why Brazil was basically an island uh, among a lot of Spanish countries around it. It, it just seems, I guess it's surprising to me that uh, an agreement that was made you know, back in 1500 or whenever, that that has yeah. held for so long that nobody at, at any point didn't like sell the whole territory to someone else or didn't invade it. Uh, it just, uh, it's, a, it's a very European conceit, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Because the New World, you just take over huge chunks of it until the whole thing is yours and then it sort of freezes in place at a certain point. Uh, yeah, by the time I think Portugal and Spain were about uh, similar in terms of military and naval power mm-hmm. and even influence in the time. So it, it was mostly an agreement so they would be able to explore the reaches and everything they have had found here without getting into unwanted wars. And that was what mostly happened. There were some skirmishes and some... And some uh, Smaller problems, but nothing major. We even had some attempts of invasion here by the, uh, I think, in the, the 1600s, uh, by the by Netherlands, I think. Whoa, the Dutch, really? <laughs> yeah, because they were in the Caribbean at the time, and they mm-hmm. were fighting for uh, uh, for. Uh, colonies in the Caribbean in the, the age of pirates and everything that, that period of time basically so you had Spain, you had England and you had the Dutch and the French and they even tried to settle some areas that today belong to Brazil in the northern part of Brazil and that can be seen uh, that, uh, there are still uh, some signs that that happened in the local dialects and and even some names of places there. Mm-hmm. Roberto, another conception that the that a lot of Americans have about Brazil is 
the idyllic vacation paradise of Rio de Janeiro. Now, there are two ways, I think, that Americans think of Rio de Janeiro. One, uh, like I mentioned, a beautiful, idyllic vacation paradise. Another, as anybody who's played a Call of Duty game knows, Rio de Janeiro consists largely of favelas. Everybody in Rio de Janeiro lives in a favela. Uh, what You've actually been there, and you have a sister, you said, who lives there and works for the National yep. Oil Company. Uh, what's it like going to Rio de Janeiro and uh, describe that for me? Okay, so um, both, both uh, visions of Rio are partially correct, actually. So Rio is a very beautiful city in, in geographical and uh, aesthetic terms. So it, it has very beautiful beaches and the kind of mountains and hills that it has there are very unique. It's a very beautiful place. Um, but in social terms, it's also, also true that there are a lot of favelas and a lot of social tension, uh, which is spread throughout Brazil for a lot of reasons, but uh, in Rio is very noticeable. So um, it's a good place to visit. It's somewhat dangerous. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how to compare, but um, usually for tourists, it's not very dangerous because tourism is actually good for the city, and that also means the the less savory, uh, the the unsavory part of the city, so to speak. Uh, so they try to not do much stuff with tourists, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I would say it's worth going to. It can be a difficult place to live, depending on where you live in the city and what uh, kind of thing you do and how you, how much you have to go from work to home, for instance. Um, uh, so it's a troubled place. Brazil is a, a difficult place to live, especially to people uh, used to to living in developed countries, but I would say it's a very nice place to visit. Uh, when, you, when you go visit your sister, do you just hang out and spend time with your sister? Do you go out and do things in Rio? Uh, what have your visits been like? Yeah, I, I've, I, I have visited my sister about three weeks ago, um, right before Christmas, and um uh, so what we did, this, this was the first time my kid went to Rio. Uh, it was not my first time there, nor, nor my wife's, uh, but it was the first time my kid went there. So did you, we uh, did went you to, drive or did you fly? No, I've, I took a plane to go and then we drove back with my sister because she came here for Christmas. Um, so... Uh, so it was his first time. So we tried to do some sightseeing, so to speak. So uh, in the end, we we went to one very uh, famous place, with is uh, which is the Cristo Redentor. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a postal card of Rio, and we went there, and it's a very beautiful place to visit. Very beautiful view from there. Uh, it's certainly 
uh, a Moscow place if anyone goes to Rio. Now, and, uh, did, did your son appreciate it? Can a six-year-old appreciate this, the the sort of majesty of that that statue, or was it was it lost on him? No, he. Uh, I think he liked it, but I think uh, when he goes there at an older age, he will have a different experience. Sure. Uh, so uh, the first time I went to Crystal Redentor, uh, I was about five or six years old, about his age, and I still remember it. Uh, I don't, I don't have this, the the kind of awe that I I have on the view right now. I didn't have the same kind of thing, but I it was memorable enough for me to still remember it to this day. Uh, so we went there and. Uh, and we went to the beach a few times. In this case, we went to Ipanema, which is a very famous yes. beach, too. Yeah. Uh, you have the girl from Ipanema, which <laughs> is a very well-known song worldwide. You uh, now, Berto, you have now put that in everyone's head. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> yeah, and it's a nice song. Uh, Anyway, uh, we went there, and the beach there is fine. There's a place called Apuador, that it's exactly Ipanema, and they say it's the most beautiful sunset in Rio and in Brazil, and one of the most beautiful of the world. And uh, I, I tend to agree. I haven't seen most of them or all of them because <laughs> I don't travel that much, but I can vouch that it is very, very beautiful indeed. Um, now, uh, your your sister and you have the same birthday, but you're not twins. How, yes. How could that be? And that must have been terrible for the two of you growing up. <laughs> no, actually, I, I liked it. But you don't get your own birthday. Like, you have to share your birthday with your, your stupid older sister every year. Actually, is she older or younger? No, she's younger. Okay, yeah. so you have to share your birthday with your younger sister every year. When I grew up, Roberto, and I had a younger <laughs> sister as well, my birthday was my own. You know, I didn't have to share it with anyone. It wasn't like, uh, yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was all about me. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I never had that. We, we always had a shared birthday. Uh, but I remember liking, liking it. Uh, it. It was not a problem, actually. Um, and uh, it was kind of a stroke of luck, uh, but my my sister was born uh, uh, not not by late natural labor. It was a C-section, mm -hmm. uh, so it was basically uh, they set it to that day to the same day, and and it worked fine because the 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 time set was about the same. Wait, they didn't. They didn't set it. Your parents didn't do that intentionally. It just happened that the, the C-section was scheduled on the day you you were born. I mean, three years later. But they didn't. Did yeah. They want you guys to have the same birthday. Yeah, it was kind of a coincidence. So okay. she was supposed to be born in May anyway. Uh, but they wanted, uh, at least my father wanted, for us to to have the same uh, <laughs> birthday. Uh, so they scheduled the C-section for the same day. Well, you know, of course they did because it makes their lives easier. It's like, oh, we only have yeah. one day to deal with <laughs> the kids' course. birthdays. I see. Now I understand what's happening there. <laughs> uh, what, what did your? Well, what did I your... got a great birthday gift, <laughs> in a way. 
uh, you mean she's, she's a little a sister. Story. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me about your parents. Uh, my father is an English teacher, um, and my mother is a Portuguese teacher. Oh, <laughs> what are the I'm odds? Not a teacher. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know how? Was, do you know uh, how they met? How did they meet? How does a Portuguese teacher? Uh, marry an English teacher? Uh, no, when they met, uh, none of them were teachers. Okay. They okay. married about in their early 20s. Um, my father was actually, by that time, I think he was a tailor at a bank. Um, and my mother was studying to, to be a teacher at that time, I think. So they only uh, later became language teachers, I see. Yeah, my father actually became an English teacher late in life. She had businesses and he did a lot of stuff. Uh, but in his 30s, 40s, was when he, he started uh, teaching English. He actually went to the U.S. to do a master's degree uh, in English and he studied in the University of Urbana Champagne. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. And, uh, so, so he's, he's a pretty good teacher, and uh, uh, my mother is a pretty good Portuguese teacher, too. Is, uh, is English part of the curriculum for all Brazilian children? or is it Yeah, it, it, uh, it, it is now part of the curriculum. Uh, not long ago, we had actually a choice. Uh, doing education, we could choose one of two languages, basically, either English or French. Uh, but nowadays, it's mostly English. Why would uh, someone? I, why would someone choose French in that? I mean, <laughs> well, uh, back when that was established in our uh, in our uh, national curriculum, so to speak. Uh, it was back in the 20s or the 30s of last century, uh, and French was still very influential in that time period, especially in Brazil. And Brazil and France still have very close political ties, so to speak. Uh, they have a very long relationship. Um, of course, nowadays, it, French is not uh, nearly as, as useful as English is because English is, for all intents and purposes, the, the universal language uh, nowadays. But So uh, the fact is that most people choose English, but um, there are very few people in Brazil who are actually proficient in English enough to speak. They can understand certain, uh, basic stuff or very simple phrases, most of them, but uh, only a few have enough of uh, English knowledge to actually speak and, and talk to someone else in, in English. You're, uh, you work in, uh, in software development. Is a lot of your yeah. work in English or does uh, a lot of your work in Portuguese? Yeah, uh, well, I work for a company that is mostly local. Um, so... Uh, uh, I work uh, nowadays with web development of a specific B2B portal here in Brazil. And uh, 
So everything in the site is in Portuguese because it, it, it only works with local uh, companies. But um, in this field of work, if you don't know English, you are basically uh, uh, at a huge handicap compared to other texts because uh, most of the, the, the good documentation you will find is in English. Most of the things developed most of the source code you you get to work with, it's also in English. So right. uh, it's basically a requirement of, of this specific area of work. Now, here in the United States, uh, we're having a, uh, a very odd resurgence of right-wing politics. And that's something that has uh, been taking place in, in Europe as well. Uh, with Brexit in, in the UK. Uh, there's a crazy woman in France named, I think, Marie Le Pen. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you guys have a, a similar right-wing thing going on in Brazil? Is there any counterpart to what we're experiencing uh, to, your, to Brazil's political situation? Yeah, there is something similar, but, but in Brazil, things are a bit different. So, uh, politics here, if you think... Uh, the situation now in the U.S. is terrible. Uh, that would be situation normal here in Brazil. Uh, so we have a very, uh, a very corrupt uh, political system, and uh, it it uh, it is usually tied to those who hold power. Uh, in a significant way, so it's a very difficult place to be in political terms. So, uh, seeing what you are going through in the U.S. now, uh, so for Brazilian, it's it's. Uh, I would say that most most Brazilian people will look at what's going on there and say, "Okay, what's the big deal?" <laughs> We're used to it. We've been living under that. Yeah, because right it's now. situation normal here. And uh, but anyway, there has been yes uh, an increase in that right wing kind of thing. Brazil uh, for a long time has it has uh, a left lean in, in politics but it's not quite, it, it's very difficult to describe because there are a lot of conflicts of interest and all kinds of forces in the country that make it very difficult to to uh, uh, classify in, in a way that uh, you can't classify US politics uh, and, and it, it's complicated because uh, not many people are aware of that but uh, I was born under a military dictatorship in Brazil, which went up to 1985. So uh, democracy returned in 1985. So the country is basically still relearning how to do that. And, uh, and we had very difficult patches along that way. Uh, the the 80s and 90s were very difficult. After 94, things improved markedly, but it's still difficult. Uh, parties have a lot of power here, and uh, representation doesn't work as it should. If you ask me who is my who is my 
uh, I'm trying to board here. Representative Who represents me in the House or in the Senate. Okay. We would I call those. Uh, we would call those. Oh, you can't why because you don't know or because it's 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 no obscure. because the way that the system works, it's not uh, it's not connected to regions or to places specifically. It's connected to parties, to political parties. So uh, to be represented, you have basically to align yourself with one of those parties. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if you if you don't, you're basically not represented. It's it's messy, and and people are still trying to figure out how to fix that. Uh, but I I'm not holding my breath because <laughs> it's complicated. When people in the United States talk politics, they often, and especially nowadays, self-identify as I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. We're very much a two-party system. Are political yeah. conversations in Brazil like that? Do you, for instance, talk with your sister or your uncle in Rio and say, you know, I'm talking about the perspective of party X and your party Y? Uh, do people self-identify that way in Brazil? Yeah, well, not quite because we have over 40, 30 parties here. Uh-huh. Nowadays, uh, but of course there are the strongest ones. Right now we have three or four parties that are uh, are stronger than the others, and of of those there are two that are basically opposed to each other. Um, so there has been a process. Uh, uh, in the last two decades or so, that it's tending to a bipartisan kind of arrangement, uh, but not quite. It's not exactly one of those big players can be replaced by one of the others at any time, and it has happened a few times already in the few de- in the last few decades. So, yeah. my uh, my uh, oh well. What what little I know about the politics in Brazil comes from I'm embarrassed to admit this, Roberto. Uh, there's there's a Brazilian director named Jose Jose Padillo who did a movie called Elite Force or Elite Squad. Nice. Elite Squad. Right? Padilla. Yes. Oh yeah. How do you say his last name? Because we have a we have a, in the United States there was a guy in New York who was arrested for trying to build a a, a, a weapon of mass destruction. His name is Jose Padilla. So your director's name is not pronounced that way. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, Padilla. Padilla. Okay, good. I'm glad to yeah. know that because it's always I always feel weird talking about him uh, because it's the same name as the dirty bomber, Padilla. Okay, so <laughs> you know who he is? I guess is this guy as well known? Yes, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, in the United States, I think his uh, well his big break, and I don't know that it went as well for him as, as it should have, but he did a, a Robocop remake here in the United States after having done these really cool movies, uh, these elite squad movies, which are kind yeah. of about a – I don't want to say paramilitary, but they're about uh, – well, no, they're about a, about police force basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so those, those are well known in Brazil I guess. Yes, very much. And they are very good movies, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, 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 and the portrait they, they paint, uh, uh, it, it's very close to what actually happens here. Uh, so, uh, 
you said it's elite troops. The name uh, elite. So the I, the Star elite Trek Force. I use uh, elite Force is the Star Trek game. I think yeah. movies are translated <laughs> as elite squad. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Here is Tropa Gielici, which is basically elite squad, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's basically uh, uh, it's a bit like SWAT, kind of, mm-hmm. uh, but not really. And uh, they are usually called when things get really rough, and and things are rough in Rio. So uh, that 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 film shows a bit what of what actually happens here. Mm-hmm. And Giuseppe Agili is a good director. I watched Robocop 2, and uh, I, I know what he was trying to do, and I know uh, uh, that he didn't actually get to do what he actually wanted, but uh, it, it was nice to see. There are not many Brazilians... Uh, in those industries, in entertainment industries in general, that are well known uh, outside of Brazil, and uh, so you have a few actors like Sonia Braga or Fernando Montenegro, and you have Jose Padilha now, which is uh, uh, a director, a pretty good one. You have maybe Rodrigo Santoro, which is uh, an actor that 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 got a lot of small roles or uh, medium-sized, so to speak, roles in, mm-hmm. in American movies. I think he's now in Westworld. Yeah, um, I totally know who he is. Yeah, yes. yeah I, uh, he's, he's been around for a while. I, I'm not sure I didn't realize he was Brazilian. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Rodrigo Santoro is Brazilian. Yeah. And uh, he's a pretty good actor here. Uh, he was celebrated here. So there are not many, but those who are, are tend to be pretty good. Uh, I actually don't know what Jose Pagilio has done since RoboCop. Is he does, is he I, doing more movies in Brazil? Do you know? No, doing movies in Brazil is very complicated. Uh, uh, well, I know, for instance, uh, Roberto, we have, uh, I think, the, the Fast and Furious. Like, every now and then a movie wants to shoot in Rio de Janeiro. And I know. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's it's difficult, like as as far as security, I understand. Like to to move an American production to work in Brazil, I know has unique logistical challenges involved with security. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, uh, that's a funny thing. Usually, when people will do movies in favelas and and stuff like that, there are not a lot of issues because police will actually talk to the criminals too, so they. They kind of <laughs> let people do things there. It's like, it's like, uh, and I'm not even joking. No, I, I believe it. It's sort of like getting the rights to shoot somewhere. Yeah, yeah, kind of that. Yeah. So yeah, so it, it's very rare to to that that people will have some real issue with that. And people here uh, like the movies. I like cinema in general, especially uh, American cinema, because. Uh, in Brazil, uh, we didn't have very strong industry in terms of movies. We have a few, but they tend to be very low budget or very specifically in a certain area like comedies and something that is very local in nature. So it's not often that you will see a Brazilian movie in, uh, in the Oscars, for instance, or stuff like that, because it's, it's a very... Um, 
difficult industry here because of money, because of a, a lot of a lot of different issues. But uh, anyway, do you know is film in Brazil? Is there is there much of a, a government funded arts? Uh, is there? Yeah. There is, and, and you might have noticed in Brazilian movies that uh, when the film opens, or in the end of it, you see a lot of uh, logos of different companies, because uh, the thing that works here basically is that the government gives companies tax breaks uh, if they contribute money to, for movies to, maybe, to be made. But the counterpart is that those companies get to put their logos on the movies. Uh, and they usually do that in the start of the movie or at the end. Mm -hmm. And there is some product placement too. Uh, and and that's, how, that's basically the only way to get funding to do any movies here. So it's very common to see that kind of stuff. I don't know if you notice, and I don't know if uh, distribution in the West somehow takes those parts off. But it's very, very uh, common here to see. But it's difficult. It's a difficult industry here. So we're, we're recording in, uh, in January 2017. What right now, Roberto, are the big movie releases in, 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 uh, in, your, in your town in Brazil? Okay. I would have to check that. Actually, it occurs to me. Yeah, you have a you have a six year old. You don't get to go to movies. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, actually, I went to the movies. Uh, my sister was here, so I went to to watch Rogue One with my wife. Okay. And he went with my sister to watch Sing. Why didn't he go he to Rogue it. One? You have a six year old boy, and you didn't take him to Rogue One. You you made him go see um, Sing instead of Rogue One. Uh, Rogue One is not exactly a kid movie. That's actually uh, a good point. I mean, and that's one of the things that it, people have said about Rogue One, isn't it? Is that it's not as whimsical. It's a little darker than most Star Wars movies. Yeah, fair Yeah, enough. yeah. I didn't think that the theme was appropriate. He actually watched uh, the, the original Star Wars movies, uh, I mean, before Force Awakens. And I remember that we were watching... Uh, a New Hope, so episode four, Star Wars, the original one. It's kind to know how to name it now. You know, Roberto, but, uh, it's called Star Wars. Just say Star okay. Wars. <laughs> okay. So we were watching, and I, I, I didn't actually remember anything that I thought was not appropriate for kids. Mm -hmm. And then there's that part where Luke arrives at his house in Tatooine, and there's a uh, a burnt skeleton on the the outside of the house. It's Uncle Owen or Aunt Beru. Yeah, yeah. that's Uncle yeah. Owen. And I didn't remember that at all. And my kid wasn't watching. And I was kind of, okay. Uh, yeah, he totally noticed. He said, did oh, gross. <laughs> something to that effect. So, yeah, it's too late now. But anyway, Rogue One, uh, I thought was best not. Now, what, uh, what did, what, what did, by the way, what is your son's name? Uh, Eduardo. That would be Edward. Okay. The, the Brazilian equivalent of Edward. Yeah. Say it, say it one more time for me. Uh, in Portuguese? Uh, well, yeah, your son's name, how you pronounced it. Yeah, Eduardo. Oh, Eduardo, okay. Did, what did he think? Of, did he want to see Rogue One? Like, did he feel, did he realize he was being cheated by sent, being sent to see Sing when you got to go see Rogue One? No, 
Okay. Uh, and actually, he liked it because he saw the trailer for Sing, and he likes music in general. And uh, he basically got uh, he became a big fan of that gorilla singing "Stay with Me." Uh, sure, right, right. Something, <laughs> and he wanted to see the movie, and he went to see it, and he loved it. So, yeah. uh, he uh, is, sing is the movie by you may not know this the guy who did uh, once and begin again, or I'm thinking of Sing Street. No, it's uh, I don't know. It, it, I think the name is just Sing. It's okay. one that is now. Yeah, so other movies, I, I'm not sure. I think Rogue One is still showing here. Not sure how strongly right now. Will, uh, you, will you get to see Triple uh, X, The Return of Xander Cage? <laughs> I'm curious about that one, because the first Triple X I, I thought was pretty entertaining. Mm -hmm. But I haven't seen any of the others, and... Uh, Watching movies is kind of complicated sometimes because of time and and logistics. Right. Uh, so I have to pick and choose. Uh, this year, I, I think the only one I must go to see is Episode Eight, uh, Star Wars. Again, you have uh, you you have about uh, twelve months to plan for that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's uh, it should be fine. I think. Uh, Roberto, before we uh, talk about games, I want to ask you about uh, being married to a psychologist. You, yeah. What is, what is it like? You can't when when you have a disagreement with her, she has an unfair advantage. <laughs> well, actually, uh, I think there is a, a kind of pattern because you see, I'm I'm uh, my major is in electrical engineering. And I'm basically an engineer at heart. And I know a lot of engineers who married psychologists. Why? So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not sure of the pattern. I think engineers are not exactly normal. Uh, <laughs> Gilbert would <laughs> attest to that. Uh, but uh, so I guess that we look for someone that can help us, I don't know, fit in society or something like that. All I know is that it, it has been working so far, so well, I'm you, pretty glad. You're about to come up on your 20-year anniversary. That That's amazing, Humberto. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, how did, how did you meet your wife? Uh, we met in church. Uh, so I, I went to a, a church uh, gathering uh, kind of thing that uh, I don't know. Uh, so when you go to a place to spend some days in spiritual retirement, uh, I, I don't know the, the term you use in English. I think re retreat. Not exactly. But yeah, retreat, kind of. Mm -hmm. So I met her there. And uh, so that that was in, in October of uh, 96, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we met again in, in a different retreat, and we started dating, and one year later, we got married. So that, that was basically how it happened. What was your wedding like? Uh, I don't know. It was normal. I think the only different thing, uh, we, we married in a small church that we were both members of, and uh, the only different thing is that I sang for her.
at the uh, wedding. Yeah, at the wedding. Because uh, uh, I, I, I played and sang at weddings for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I, I made a song and I, I sang it in our wedding. I think that was the only big different thing. Uh, That's great. Did, did you surprise her? Did she know you were going to do that? Yeah, it was a surprise. I actually left the, the altar and she was looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Where and are you uh, going? Get back here. <laughs> yeah, so I got to the keyboard and I, I had pre-recorded part of the arrangement and I put it there and I played along and I sang and she cried and everybody cried. It was good. That's wonderful, Alberto. Well, well played. Well played. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, what does your wife think of video games? She, she never, uh, uh, she didn't play. She isn't a gamer, and she never had a lot of interest in video games. Uh, she always understood uh, uh, that I like video games and I like to, to enjoy them and everything. But recently, uh, so about two or three years ago, we bought a Wii U, mm-hmm. uh, Nintendo, and uh, can I, I can got. I, can I, I'm going to guess that you bought it on the basis you sold it to your wife on the basis that it would be good for uh, Eduardo, for your son. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Well, again, <laughs> well worked, played. Yeah. And actually, it worked uh, better than I expected because she actually enjoyed some of the games there. So she plays Super Mario 3D World with my kid and with me and a bit of Mario Kart 8 too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's not she's not a gamer yet, but she she kind of get what is nice about video games now. Mm-hmm. So so that's a good thing. I have to uh, thank Nintendo for that. You, you said growing up that uh, gaming there was largely based on uh, piracy. I think a yeah. lot of software publishers didn't uh, didn't think of South America as a market like they do today. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you said Steam has changed that a lot because now Valve has a controlled platform and they, they're selling stuff in different markets like South America. Uh, yeah. So uh, what growing up uh, considering that, you know, basically you probably only played what was able, what was available through piracy. What were the big games for you uh, growing up, as far as video games on computers and console systems? Okay, so um, uh, console systems were very difficult to get here uh, unless they were produced here. Um, so my first, my first, the first thing I played games in was a small computer called CP400 that was basically a clone of the TRS-80 caller, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had some games that were mostly ports of arcade games at the time. And arcades were pretty popular here, so you could go there to play Pac-Man and Double Dragon and, and that kind of stuff, and I actually enjoyed that a lot. Uh, so real quick, Alberto, when, when we played them, like in the U.S., we think of arcade machines, we would put quarters in them. That was the, you know, it's a, it's a 25 cent piece, it represents a quarter of a dollar. What do you call yeah. the coins that you would put in arcade machines? Uh, we called Fisha because it, it was not a, a coin, actually, because inflation was so rampant here at the time that uh, prices changed every month. So they have a specially 
a kind of special coin with uh, uh, it worked a bit like a key it had this this recesses uh, so it would fit uh, and you had to buy those and use those in the the arcade machines. Is it was it like That's a token that the a token yeah, put in a coin? Okay. Yeah. So basically you weren't putting a, a, a piece of money into the machine, you were buying yeah. tokens at whatever price they were going for. Yeah, exactly. I see. Yeah. Okay. All right, so I'm sorry, uh, so you said you had arcades, it was difficult to get console systems, uh, but you yeah, had arcades. those were popular. The, the, the first popular console here was the Atari uh twenty six hundred. I think, uh, and it was produced locally because importing was extremely expensive, so it was out of reach for most people. And uh, and then uh, the Atari was all we had until later we had uh, the Master System, which is was a Sega system, 8-bit, and the Mega Drive, which is the Genesis. Sega Genesis was very popular here. It was a, a local production licensed from uh, Sega here. But, uh, and some games were sold here at that time, but very, a very limited uh, set of them because uh, the market was not that big. Uh, the, the, the times were difficult in terms of economy. Uh, so uh, most people would would play things, and even even cartridges that that were would what all those consoles used, uh, they would be cloned here and copied and everything, and people would actually buy those copy those copies here. Like original games, these wouldn't be officially yeah bootlegs. Yeah, right, right, uh-huh. sure. Uh, and even later, for computer games, it was basically the same thing. Uh, there were very few games officially released and published and sold here, so most of them would be uh, pirated. That that started uh, that that began to change uh, in the early 90s because some companies in Brazil decided to to license games and publish them here. And it worked fine for a little while, but then things started to getting to, to get difficult for those companies and they started uh, basically going bankrupt. And uh, it was difficult to, to find games here. And importing was actually an option at that time because the exchange rates were better and everything. The economy was a lot more stable, but that was around the time that uh, uh, digital stores appeared as an option. So you had Gamersgate that uh, sold uh, games here, and then you had Steam from '97 onwards. Mm-hmm. And still, we still have some companies publishing things here. Nowadays, there are very few publishing companies. Uh, that release and publish physical copies here, only in some cases for some very specific games. Well, I think uh, that's the case everywhere. I mean, that's that's now the case. I guess console systems we sell physical copies, but I think that's a global thing, isn't it? Is this idea that you know you don't, yeah. you don't get a physical copy of a game, you just buy the online version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the last ten years, uh, gaming has has expanded a lot in Brazil. 
last 10 or maybe 15 years, uh, uh, due in large part to the possibility of digital distribution uh, and uh, also to, to uh, the, the added time of economic stability. Uh, so it, it, it allowed many people that wouldn't otherwise buy games to actually buy games and enjoy them. And, uh, and so Brazil is now uh, 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 in a very different place compared to, to the last part of the last century in terms of gaming. Mm -hmm. uh, so now we even have Steam, for instance, has regional pricing for Brazil. Uh, and most digital stores have the same thing because the, the the market here is big enough that it makes sense to do such a thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because games otherwise are very it's still very expensive here due to the way our economy is not nearly as strong as the US or some other country. Uh, so uh, you if you think of inequality in terms of income uh, differences in the U.S., in Brazil, it's much worse. Sure. Uh, so we have a lot of less people that can buy games and everything. Now, were MMOs a significant part of your, your gaming experience? Uh, did you were you involved in like World of Warcraft, for instance, or any of the earlier? No, not really, because uh, uh, so what happened is that uh, connectivity was somewhat difficult. So broadband uh, internet was something that took a while to get here. Uh, for a good, for a long time, we basically had to use modems and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the first, the first game that was, so to speak, massive, massively multiplayer that I actually played was a flight team called Warbeards. Sure, right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and, and I used a modem to connect and everything, and, and it had a subscription, which was another difficult thing, because not every, everybody had access to international credit cards, and the exchange rates could be uh, difficult. But with Warbeards, I made it work for a few months, but it was difficult anyway. So... When World of Warcraft came out, I, I actually, the first time I went to the U.S. was by the time World of Warcraft was released. And I actually considered buying it, uh, if I could, in the U.S., but uh, I, due to those problems of connectivity and especially the subscription, Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up not doing so because subscription can be a problem, especially with our economy in which exchange rates can vary uh, 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 in a very noticeable way in a very short period of time. So it can be difficult to, to predict it or to pay. And, and there is another problem in my case because I tend to play a lot of games and experiment and experience a whole lot of different games. Mm -hmm. So when I pay a subscription for one, I feel kind of stuck with that one. I feel like I have the need to play because I'm actually paying for that, so I have to pay. I have to play it, and that's not a, a, a good feeling for me. I, I like the freedom to experiment with games as I choose. So uh, I never actually played any 
subscription-based MMOs uh, for any length of time. Seriously. Which is probably why the game that we're going to talk about, uh, yeah. Guild Wars, was attractive to you. Uh, exactly. So, so you got on board when, with the original Guild Wars, is that correct? Yes, yes. A friend of mine uh, was playing at the time, and he, uh, he told me about it. And I thought that was interesting. And one of the main uh, arguments that got me interested was that it had no subscription. So I decided to try it, so I bought the base game. At, at that time, it already had, I think, two two of the campaigns were out. Uh, so Factions and uh, the Alona one uh, was called uh, Nightfall. Uh, uh, very good, right. Yeah, it was just released by the time I bought the base game. And I tried it for a month, and I liked it so much that I bought the other campaigns to to play and uh, the thing is I like to play a lot of games so it's very unusual uh, to see me spending let's say a hundred years on one given game so so far the only games that uh, that I played for over a thousand hours now each would be Guild Wars and Guild Wars 2 very good. So you are you are a, a a true Guild Wars follower because I I think I'm the yeah. same way, Roberto. Is I think I, I'm very much like you also in that I like to play a lot of different games. But there are a handful where I'm sure I've spent far more hours than any other game. And yep. things like Civilization Four maybe is one of them. But absolutely Guild Wars Two. Now I played yeah. some Guild Wars One, but for me I I don't even want to know the number of hours I've spent in Guild Wars Two because <laughs> I I know it's ridiculously high. Um, now Guild Wars One is actually very different from Guild Wars Two to me because Guild Wars yeah. One was more of a kind of a pure action RPG. More in ways yeah. it had more in common with Diablo than World of Warcraft. I think. Yeah, true. Um, yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, so but then Guild Wars Two, of course, opened it up and became much more of a full-fledged uh, MMO. Uh, so, could you like? I don't. I don't think I could go back, and not just for technical reasons. I don't think I could go back to Guild Wars One. Like I, I imagine it would probably feel uh, like it just seems like Guild Wars Two is kind of the the for me. The pinnacle of massively multiplayer online games. Uh, I just think that highly of it. Yeah, well, uh, Guild Wars, uh, the first one, uh, I, I don't think I would classify it as an MMO, mm -hmm. uh, to say. Because the only places where you could meet a lot of people were the cities and hubs. So any actual... Uh, action you would have in the game in terms of exploration and combat and everything, you basically had to go to instances uh, so you ha you went there with your party and if someone uh, left no one would take uh, that person's place because it was an instance uh, so it, it was basically a, a, a normal multiplayer game that you could meet people. So cities worked a bit like hubs, and so when you entered the session, you basically had to enter in an instance. Uh, and it's a very different game to Guild Wars 2 in terms of how you play it. Uh, 
I appreciated it for uh, I still do uh, for a lot of reasons uh, so the the kind of freedom that you have had in, in, in choosing skills to use and, and choosing builds so to speak was greater than what you have in, in Guild Wars 2 for instance but the the the, the moment to moment gameplay, so to speak, in Guild Wars 2 is much more enjoyable. Uh, my difficulty to go back to Guild Wars 1 would not be related to the game, to the gameplay per se, but the thing is that since everything was instanced, so if you went into an instance and you wanted to get somewhere, you, you were you had to finish it, so to speak. <laughs> uh, so you had to enter and do everything. So there are parts of Guild Wars one that I didn't explore at all because yeah. I would have to spend an hour, two or three hours in the same place, and it was difficult back then. Now I have a small kid, which makes which makes it a lot more difficult. Yeah, you couldn't, so you couldn't save your progress and then yeah, you no. part way there. It, it wasn't exactly. like in Fallout trying to get a new waypoint or something. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you had to play so, all the way to the end of the instance. And I remember, Roberto, like banging my head against some of those instances, trying to get through yeah. just to reach that other side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there were builds specifically, uh, they called running builds. So they were specifically uh, made to made you go from one place to right. the other through an instance by skipping most of the fights and everything. Ah, so it was yeah. a thing even back then. Yeah. Uh, but Guild Wars 2, I, I appreciate it more. It's a game I, I can play more because you don't have that kind of, of limitation except in some parts of the game. For instance, if you go to a dungeon, it's instanced. Uh, if you go to a raid, it's basically an instance as well. If you choose the PvP part of Guild Wars 2, uh, it, it requires that kind of time commitment. But if you play the general PvE experience, so uh, you can play solo and everything, and you can play like 10 minutes and get away and, and pick up from where you left, and that was very, very helpful for me. Now, how many level 80 characters do you have? Nine. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. I yeah, thought I was impressive with two and a half. Like, I've got one. Nine! Wow! Wait a minute. Yeah. How many classes one are there? One of each class. Yeah, one of each Okay, class. I was wondering. Wow, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah, because, you see, one of the things I like is, uh, and I like about games in general, is exploring different things. And uh, so in Guild Wars, you have nine classes, and each of those classes play quite differently. So I wanted to experience them, them all. I'm what they call in MMO lingo, uh, alcoholic. Uh, I like to have a lot of characters that I developed. So I created nine characters, and I'm I'm very I'm very fond of RPGs, and I like to to exercise my imagination with them. So I created all my characters with their names are lore compatible. Uh, and I imagine a backstory for each of them. So basically, the nine characters I have are part of the same guild, and they know each other, and then they work together. And I, I, I come to enjoy the game a lot more if I do that. Now, uh, obviously, you can't. Uh, I, you obviously must have a favorite class, right? Of those nine, 
Uh, you, you must pick a favorite, right? Now, I know you're going to say, oh, I like some of them equally. I'm not going to stand for that, Roberto. Which one of them is your favorite class? And can I, can I make uh, – if, if you don't say Mesmer, you're wrong. Yeah, it's a Mesmer. Yeah. Oh, I was kidding. I mean, because I, I like no, – so, it's a Mesmer. <laughs> no, the thing is, uh, you see, uh, in Guild Wars 1, my favorite class was the Ritualist. Mm-hmm. And I liked the Ritualist because he was not a master of anything, but uh, uh, that class was a jack-of-all-trades, so to speak. So you could fill any kind of hole in a group that you need. So he would play as a healer, and he could play as a lot of things, support or even tank. Uh, it could do all of those things. But... Uh, in terms of gameplay, the, the character that I played the most, despite liking the Ritualist so much, was a Mesmer in Guild Wars 1, because I really liked the kind of gameplay that a Mesmer has. It, you basically are confusing your your opponent, and you are second-guessing, and are trying to figure out what your opponent is going to do, so you anticipate that. And the Mesmer in Guild Wars 2 has much of the same feel, despite the fact that the gameplay is is considerably different. And uh, I thought uh, the, the Guild Wars 2 now has a, a class that is very much... Uh, uh, is very much like the Ritualist in Guild Wars 1, which is now the Revenant. Oh, right. Uh, That's the new class which is part of Thorns. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So the Revenant... Ha- has this, uh, he can adapt to any role in, in your party and it's very, very easy to do so. And I thought that would be my main, uh, my most appreciated class when, once it came out. But uh, the fact is uh, the, the most time I have in the game and the most exploration done and the most I have played is the Mesmer because it's very versatile and it has a very, very nice kind of gameplay. But to be honest, I like a lot of classes. I play with most of them. I don't play my Mesmer exclusively. I play a lot of with my with my uh, Revenant, with my Necromancer, and uh, those are the ones I appreciate the most. So I, when I played Guild Wars 1, my favorite class was a, a Necromancer because I kind of like the the, the the chaos of pet builds where you've just got a yeah. bunch of pets and they're doing all the stuff and you're just kind of hanging back and enjoying the spectacle like that's that's yeah. a lot of how a necromancer played in Guild Wars one uh, so in Guild Wars two I've sampled all of the different uh, classes but uh, the one I've probably played the least well the, the one that I, the Mesmer, I think, is also my favorite as well, Huberto. But I've done a weird thing with Guild Wars 2 where I, I've got a Necromancer at 80, an Engineer. Um, the Mesmer is probably the one that I've played the least because – and this is odd – I'm kind of saving it for last because I think it's, uh, it's, it's what I like best in there. So it's almost like if you have a box of candy or a bunch of jelly beans, yeah. like you want to save your favorite one until the end. So yeah. I've been doing that for literally years with my Mesmer. Uh, but I love – what I like about the Mesmer is how uh, how it's like a tree of decisions from moment to moment. Like there's a lot more – I guess interactivity or the opposite of the 
the mesmer on this spectrum of moment-to-moment interactivity would be something like a ranger, where you're just hanging back and you're doing range damage and you might have a pet. But the mesmer is just so kind of intricate um, that, uh, yeah, so I was just kidding you before when I said you're wrong if you don't choose the mesmer, (laughs) because the mesmer takes a very specific kind of gamer. Right, someone who wants that kind of interactivity. Uh, yeah, and the mesmer is not a very uh, easy class to play and and give wars to. And until you you, I think until level forty or so, the mesmer is actually a bit underpowered in the game. So it's very difficult to keep alive, so to speak. So it really blossoms at around level forty, forty-five. So at, at least it was when I played because they changed a, a lot of things regarding traits. I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where the curve of power sits right now in, in the game uh, because I leveled my Mesmer so, so far ago right now. It, it, they really but, rework a lot of the early levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. they did. And uh, most of my, my level 80 classes, uh, I level up uh, well before those changes. So, uh, so I, I don't exactly know how it stands now, but it's a very interesting class to play, uh, and it's very useful in in PVE too. So you can build portals from one place to another, and Guild Wars has, along with the normal MMO battle things and everything, it has jumping puzzles, and it's very very uh, common for you to see. Uh, mesmers that do the jump on puzzles and then use the portals to bring people who don't want to do the jump on puzzle or who have difficulties doing that puzzle. That's cheating! Oh my gosh, that's totally cheating! <laughs> I never thought of yeah, that. But, yeah, but yeah, that's the thing. Uh, uh, it's very useful in that sense because sometimes you don't have the time or you don't have the effort or maybe the skill. Some some jumping puzzles in Guild Wars are 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 very difficult yeah, and, yeah. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And so having a Mesmer that will do that for you is, is very cool. And I did that many times. Right now, Guild Wars 2 has the daily uh, kind of daily missions right, right. Uh, that you have to do. And then they will usually do, okay, you have to go to a Vista in, in some place or you have to mine in some place. And Often, it has a jumping puzzle as part of the daily challenges. And most people have done those jumping puzzles already. They just want to go there to get the, the daily rewards. Right, right. So, Mesmers are very useful in that aspect. And I have done that multiple times in the game. I went with my Mesmer and, and built portals for people to, to get their, their daily achievements. And it's very nice to do that because you will see people interacting and thanking you and some will even send you gold or anything as a thank you it's it's an interesting kind of interaction that i really appreciate in the game one of my i I think if i were to single out the one thing that i love most about guild wars 2 that sets it apart from other mmos is arena net has designed it very specifically so there is never a time where you don't like seeing another player. Like in other MMOs, yeah. there are things where like, oh, I, I wanted to play this alone, or this guy's just going to get in my way, or he's going to take something before I get it, or 
You know, he's not going to add anything. Like in Guild Wars Two, I think it's always an asset when there are other players nearby. Uh, it is it is socially engineered to make you glad to see other people. That's true. Uh, and that's unique to me in, in Guild Wars. And what you're describing about the Mesmer is, is an example of that. Yeah. 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 What are your feelings about the Heart of the Thorn add-on? Because they did some well, moderately controversial things there. What, what do you think of Heart of the Thorns? Heart of, Heart of Thorns? Heart of the Thorn. Heart of, the, Heart of Heart, Thorns. Heart of Thorns, yes. Right. Um, well, I, I can only speak for myself. I liked it a lot in many ways. It has some significant issues. Uh, so uh, let, let me say what I liked, it, I liked about it. So the new class is, is very cool. The, the Revenant uh, has some interesting options, and it is the closest to a class that I really liked in Good Wars 1 that was Ritualist, as I said. So I was very happy to, to see it arrive. Uh, the part I like the most are what they call elite special um, oh god elite specialization. specialization yeah specialization. Yeah, yep, you. you got it very good very good yeah so um, for people who know D and D they're kind of like prestige classes so you basically have your base classes and you can change that class a little bit and and tune it in a different way. And uh, for the, the classes that I play the most, uh, those elite specs that they added uh, were really good. And they changed the classes in very interesting ways. Um, uh, so each class has one of those uh, elite uh, choices that you can choose on the traits that you have, the trait lines that you have. And uh, to give an example, uh, uh, the Mesmer uh, gets an elite that's called the Chronomancer. Uh, and basically, it not only adds the ability to use a weapon that you couldn't use before, so that means five different skills uh, that you can use that you wouldn't be able to use otherwise. But it also adds, it, it changes... Uh, a little bit the way the class works, and it introduced uh, uh, area of effect skills that are very useful to the Mesmer, and it also introduced a different kind of feel to the class, and it meshes very well with the rest of what the Mesmer does. Um, if there is one issue with those elite choices, is that they are most of them are so much better than just the base class that most people will uh, use those almost exclusively. Right. Uh, but it's still, they were a very interesting way of shaking up those those classes that we got to know so well and and make them uh, better and more interesting in a lot of a lot of ways. But don't uh, you have to, to do an elite specialization? Uh, did, did your character? Do you have to be at level eighty? I forget what the prerequisite is. Yeah, you have yeah. to be at level eighty, and you have to use a lot of hero points or challenge points. I'm right. Not, I'm not exactly. They changed the nomenclature, so I'm not. I'm not really sure what they call it now. But you basically have to uh, get those points doing things in the world and basically unlocking some kinds of challenges. 
luckily for me, I had played most of the game already. So for the classes I played the most, I was nearly there in the number of points that were needed. So I unlocked uh, uh, the elite specs for most of my classes. Uh, well, I think one of the uh, the clever things with those elite classes, you mentioned that they kind of obsolete their uh, early versions, like the Chronomancer is more powerful than a regular Mesmer. But when when ArenaNet released these, one of the things they said is we're not just raising the level cap. Because that's something that like has happened several times in World of Warcraft or in any MMOs when they add – uh, new content, they have to give you like another 10 levels or whatever that you can work your way up. In a way, these elite specializations are just kind of raising the level caps, but instead of giving you a higher number to attain, they kind of mixed up the gameplay a lot. Like, yeah. So I, I think the Chronomancer does obsolete the Mesmer in the same way that being level 80 would obsolete being level 70. It's just a different kind of Nomenclature for that is is the word yeah. you used. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's uh, a good debate to put in. I I want to ask you before we go. Um, there are there are I think of I guess three distinct ways to play Guild Wars, and I have a theory that nobody does all three. And I'm curious if this is the case with you. The three yeah. distinct ways are. Uh, uh, single player, which tends to be do the story and do some exploration, uh, uh, gearing up, like doing in-game kind of grinding or gearing up in instances and fractals, dungeons and fractals, and uh, multiplayer, whether it's realm versus realm or PvP. I myself, I think any player you ask could rank from I play this one a lot, this one a little, and this one almost never. Uh, so for me personally, a lot of PvE, very little dungeons and fractals, and PvP almost never. Is that does does my theory hold out with you, Roberto? Yeah, that that's basically that's that's basically what I do too. I do PvE almost yeah, like ninety five percent of my time with the game is like that. And I like PvE also because it gives you that opportunity to interact with other people, but you don't have to necessarily. You can play it on your own. So I really like that kind of approach, and it works really well with Guild Wars 2. Um, I have played a few of the dungeons, but as I said, they are instants. So you are committed to that time, which in my case sometimes is kind of difficult to do. They're not just a commit. It's not just a time commitment, Roberto. But I think yeah. a lot of the dungeons have these kind of puzzle elements where yeah, yeah. you need you either need someone to show you how to play the dungeon, or you need to do it with people who are very patient and willing to work out the puzzle with you. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, have you done a uh, lot of fractals? Uh, no, just a little bit. Because of the same thing, yeah. they are also instants. So I did a few, uh, and I like them, actually, but it's very rare for me to take the time to do that specifically. I tried to build a bit of World versus World, which mm-hmm. is one of the multiplayer um, options. And uh, it's interesting, but I, I, I prefer... The normal PV, PVP, I never tried. 
and uh, Heart of Thorns uh, actually added raids, which are basically uh, somewhat similar to raids in other MMOs. Mm-hmm. But uh, I haven't tried any of them because uh, they are also very time-consuming. So I will tell you, if you ever jump into PvP, there is no class more annoying to be fighting against than a Mesmer, which is another oh, yeah. reason that I love Mesmers. I know that if I'm playing PvP, I am annoying the hell out of the other guy. Even if he's killing me all the time, he is super annoyed as he is doing it. So <laughs> I love that about yeah. Mesmers. And uh, actually, in one of the Living Season episodes recently, so there's a place in the the time, and and so you're facing a certain enemy, and then when you are about to to win the fight, a Mesmer appears and (laughs) makes a portal and gets him out, and someone in your party says, I hate Mesmers, and someone else says... Yeah, they are awesome when you they are in your team, but not so much in the other team. So yeah, they they are very aware of that. And uh, uh, Roberto, if someone wanted to uh, friend you in uh, Guild Wars, do you know by memory your account name and the four-digit number? Like, because I'm constantly having to look mine up. Could you could you cite yours from memory? No, I can't. Ah. I can't say the name because it's basically the one I use everywhere. Go, actually, do tell people, because in case people want to friend you in Guild Wars, they would just search for, uh, is it is it Ramorim? I'm, I'm pronouncing it as if it was Hebrew. I don't know how you pronounce your name. Yeah, I like that, that way to pronounce it. <laughs> Sometimes how do you pronounce I would it? just spell the, the letters. Uh, I don't, <laughs> usually. <laughs> but it says, okay, Ramorim, Ramorim, yeah, something like that. Well, it also sounds, uh, you're, you're a fantasy nerd, it also sounds in a way like Rohirrim, like the, in Lord yeah, of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> it, it was not intentional, but yeah. <laughs> so, uh, R-A, oh, go ahead. Yeah, R-H-A-M-O-R-I-M. Uh, and and you can also, folks listening, you can find me as, uh, I think, just Tom Chick. And the thing about my four-digit number, Oberto, and I I constantly, I, I need to, it's something like, it's a year, it's a date. It's something like, like 1685, and I keep meaning to look up what's something that happened in that year that will help me remember that four-digit number. <laughs> uh, and I forget. Yeah, yeah, mine is like five, six, five, six, seven, nine, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you're, you're screwed for another... Uh, 3,500 years then before you can yeah, do that, that memory trick. Exactly. <laughs> well, Alberto, I've, I've had a great time talking with you, and I would love I, – I could go on for hours about Guild Wars 2, and I'm so glad you picked it because, like I said, I, it's an MMO that long after I've decided that I'm done with other MMOs, and that's what I mentioned with Elder Scrolls Online earlier on, is I, I love Bethesda's – like I love Skyrim. I love their Elder Scrolls game, but I have zero desire – to try Elder Scrolls Online, largely because I, I feel like Guild Wars 2 has kind of like I'm I'm done with MMOs as long as that game is available. Uh, did, so did you say it wasn't your game of the week because you actually have played or haven't played Elder Scrolls Online? I have I, actually. So I played Guild Wars one and two, and I wanted to try other, let's say, more classic MMOs. Right. So I tried two of them. One is Elder Scrolls Online, and the other one is Star Wars The Old Republic. Mm-hmm. And I honestly find them a bit 
difficult to play because I'm so used to Guild Wars 2. And yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's kind of my comfort game, almost. So I, I keep wanting that thing that I have in Guild Wars 2 in other games. So Elder Scrolls Online and, and uh, the Old Republic have their own strengths. Uh, but for me, the one that works the best is, is certainly Guild Wars 2. Yeah, I'm with so you. I feel the same. Well, Alberto, thank you for hanging out with me today. It's been awesome. I've never met anyone from Brazil, so this was this was great for me. Thank you very much. I thank you. Tall and tan and young and lovely, the girl from Ipanema goes walking, and when she passes, he smiles, but she doesn't see. She just doesn't see. No, she doesn't see. She just doesn't see.